This time on Pole Hub, the second in a series of special episodes on 1968, the year that rocked American politics. It's the 50th anniversary of that hugely consequential year, and our focus this time is on civil rights, or rather how 1968 became the year that a sweeping era of civil rights battles and reforms and progress came to an end with the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and months later, Bobby Kennedy. Former New York Times columnist and NBC News correspondent, also filmmaker Bob Herbert, is here to discuss what happened then and how it relates to now. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper, Director of Innovation here at the Marist Poll. This spring, here at the Marist College campus in Poughkeepsie, New York, we've been holding a series of discussions with notable thinkers about 1968. The war, civil rights, political upheaval. We're talking about it all and how it relates to our current political climate. Our second guest was Bob Herbert, who reported for the Newark Star-Ledger, NBC News, and the New York Times. You'll also recall that he was a prominent op-ed columnist at the Times. Recently, he produced a highly acclaimed documentary on the black middle class called Against All Odds, Chasing the Dream. Our discussion took place in the Hancock Center here at Marist in front of an audience that included students, alumni, faculty, and staff. The regular Pole Hub crew, Lee Marengoff, Barbara Carvalho, and yours truly, led the discussion. Here is a portion of that conversation. Let's talk about a little bit about where you were in 1968 on April 4th, uh, and... Well, April, what, did, what did you make of that day? Uh, what impact did it have on well, you at that time? Um, the impact was huge, not surprisingly, but I remember it so clearly. As I remember that year, um, I went back to do due diligence and um, check the record and all that kind of stuff, and I just kept coming across stuff that I just already know. <laughs> um, I in 1968, I was 22 years old when the year started. I was 23. When it was over in those 365 days, it felt like you had lived a decade. It was the most astounding, exciting, fascinating, tragic, tumultuous, amazing year anyone could ever imagine. By far the most amazing year of my entire life. I have all kinds of friends. Um, I don't feel this way, but I have all kinds of friends who still think 50 years later that 1968 was the greatest year of their life and the 60s was the greatest decade of, of their life. It was pretty great for me, too, but I don't think it was the greatest of, of my life. So it, 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 I just want to create the idea that six, that the 60s were astounding and that 1968 was the most astounding year of the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On that specific day, date, April, April 4th, my, I lived in New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. I had been in the service. I got drafted in the buildup to Vietnam, uh, but I didn't go to Vietnam. I got sent to Korea, just the luck of the draw. I just got lucky, and I came back in 1967, which was the year of the big riots in, in Newark and, and Detroit. So I was back home in New Jersey. 
And my father had two stores on Main Street in Orange, New Jersey. And this was before I got into the newspaper business. I was actually working for my old man. I was a slipcover slip cutter and an, <laughs> and an upholsterer. Which you have to pronounce carefully, because we take that as an upholsterer. I say upholsterer. He thinks I'm saying a pollster. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what the... <laughs> You hear, you hear what you want to hear, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, so the news comes across. I heard on the radio um, that King had been shot. And I was in my father's station wagon, the station wagon that we used to pick up supplies with and go on deliveries with and stuff like that. And then, of course, I find out um, the word came that he had died, that he had been killed. So I was driving back to the shop. And it was unusual. My father was standing outside the shop on the sidewalk n near the curb. And th th I don't ever remember that being the case before. Why he was standing there, I don't know. I had the station wagon. So I pull up, park the wagon, get out, go up to my old man. And it wasn't like today where you hear big news and then it's all over television and then the net instantaneously you, you know you have to wait for the evening news or a bulletin or something like that so my father hadn't heard and I went up to him and I said um, Martin Luther King was shot and he had my father was not a very demonstrative guy when it came to emotions and especially negative emotions. I mean, this is not a guy that would like show sadness, you know, and certainly. And um, he had this dismayed look instantaneously on his face. And I was just shocked that my old man could have a look like that on his face. And, and it wasn't like, I mean, Martin Luther King was famous to everybody, but it wasn't like he was huge in our family. He had, my father had this dismayed look. And he said to me, where? And I actually wrote about this in a column. And what I wrote in the column was that it was not a geography question. Mm. And I said, in the head. And he just, his, his face sank, his sh shoulders kind of slumped. And I said, he's dead. Mm. And he just turned around and, and walked slowly back into the, into the shop. I never saw that kind of a reaction before or, or since. Um, on my old man's face. And of course, it was that night that riots erupted in, in many c cities across the country. Uh, DC, uh, neighborhoods in DC went up in flames. Uh, New York, I guess Lindsay was mayor. Uh, New York stayed reasonably cool mm -hmm. that night. Lindsay was out in the streets, walking the streets. He had a good relationship with the African American community um, in New York. Um, but that's what I remember about that day. Mm -hmm. But the, the thing, I, one of the things about 1968 was already amazing things had happened mm -hmm. at, that, at that point. And this was only April, and there was just so much, just so much more to come. Yeah. Yeah. What, what did you think it meant for the future? You're just If you can think back to that time, what was your sense of of what it meant to what was going on at the time. Well, here's the, the weird thing about the 60s. Um, part of it may have had to do with the fact that we were young, but it wasn't just the, the young people. There was something so hopeful about the 60s. There was something that was so 
I mean, optimism was in the air. The, the most terrible things in the world were happening all around you. I mean, um, Jack Kennedy had been killed in, in 1963. None of us had been aware of the idea of a president being assassinated up until, up until that point. So uh, Kennedy um, was killed. And there was, you know, Vietnam was raging in, in um, 1968. I had already lost uh, lots of friends in, in Vietnam. My sister's boyfriend was shot in the, in the leg. Um, as I mentioned, the, the riots in Newark and Detroit had happened um, just a few months earlier. I mean, it, was, um, it, it wasn't even a year. The, the riot in Newark was in, I guess both of them were in July of 1967. This was April of 1960. So terrible things <laughs> were happening. And yet, it was paradoxically also a fun time. I was back from Korea. I remember partying with buddies of mine who had been in Vietnam and who had come home um, safely. Uh, all the kids were having a great time. You've been listening to some of the music. It was the most wonderful music uh, in, in, the, in the world. You, you, you know, you were on dates. Guys had discovered girls and girls had discovered guys. Um, and you just had a sense that despite all the things that were going on, that the world was getting better, that um, we were progressing, that we were making progress on so many fronts. I mean, uh, not just uh, civil rights. I mean, there, 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 were, there were all kinds of new freedoms that were um, in the air. There was sexual freedom. Um, uh, women were ex experience a kind of freedom that they that that was different from their lives in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, the economy was booming. It was very easy to find jobs. Kids were going to college um, much more than they had been going to college back in the 1950s, and co and college was. Boy, college was so affordable. I mean, I, 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 knew, I knew no friends who had college debt when, when they came out after, after four years. It was no such thing. If you had said to any of us, any of my buddies or I, something about college debt, you would have gotten a blank look, the same kind of blank look you'd have gotten if somebody had said something about a cell phone, for example. So, <laughs> What was college? What was college debt? I actually was getting paid <laughs> to go to go to school. I was turning a profit because I was <laughs> I was a GI. I mean, yeah. you know, so they would they would send me a stipend every month under <laughs> under the GI Bill. So all of that is to say that it was um, despite the tragedy, which we were not tragedies, which we were not overly naive about. We were still very hopeful very optimistic, and it was, it was a very upbeat, very upbeat time. In retrospect, it seems like 1968 was the end of a chapter in civil rights in particular. Kind of this path that we saw in the film from, in the, not the film, but this thing from 55 to 68, and 68 with the assassination of King, in retrospect, seems like a period at the end of a sentence or the end of a chapter. Did it seem that way? You talk about your father's face. As a 22-year-old, did that impact hit you as well? Did you think of it in that same way? Well, interesting that you should ask that question. This was because. Not <laughs> we didn't prepare. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I'm, I'm going to give a talk at um, dinner 
And um, let's see if I can find the paragraph that, yeah, right here. Um, what I wrote was that um, I, I, I went over, uh, I plan to go over a litany of the wild and crazy things that happened, including the costs of, of some things in 1968. So I wrote here, so those are some of the facts, fun and otherwise, from 1968. We knew it had been an incredible year, the wildest uh, that any of us who were under 30 had ever seen. What we didn't know <coughs> was that in addition to everything else, 1968 was signaling the end of the 1960s, not just chronologically, but as an idea, as a, as a way of life. That was the year um, that the great hopes of the 1960s um, died, or actually began to die. I think they actually sank, the death knell was actually 1969. Um, but it was an era that was coming to an end. We had no idea that the civil rights, you're right about the civil rights movement, but we had no idea that the civil rights movement was coming mm -hmm. to an end then. In fact, um, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was essentially saying that they would continue with Dr. King's Poor People's Can't March. So yeah. we thought that the, the banner would just be handed to new leadership and, and go forward. And one of the weirdest things about the um, um, 1968 especially, decades don't usually begin on the year <laughs> chronologically that they begin. 1960 was very much like the, the 1950s. I mean, Dwight Eisenhower was president in, in 1950, and I still think of 1960 is that era that was in black and white. When I look back on my, on my life, it was a black and white era. And then sort of in, in around 1963 or 64, it became Technicolor. It was a little bit like the Wizard of Oz. So, um, but the 60s actually ended, I think, in 1969. And I knew something had, yeah, Kent State, I, I believe. Well, I don't know, 70. 70. 70. Kent, Kent yeah. State was 1970. But I thought that the 60s really ended in 1969. But I didn't think that then. I knew that, that something had changed. But I thought that people were taking a breather. I thought it was like sort of a, a, mm -hmm. a, a historical pause, that the 60s had been so tumultuous, so tumultuous, that people were exhausted. And they had to like sit back and sort of catch their breath and stuff, and then it became the 70s, and then I figured, I don't know, in another year or two, we'll, we'll get, get it going again, mm -hmm. and it never happened, yeah. the, the, the 60s. What, what are some the of the successes of the civil rights movement that you think did carry forward? You talked about good things happening, well, obviously bad things happening. What are some of the successes that you think carried over from some of the things that we just saw and, and what you were feeling at the time? So in the... Um, um, in my film, Against All Odds, mm -hmm. the, the fight for a black middle class, one of the big things um, that we talk about was discrimination in housing and how difficult it was to establish a, a decent standard of living for African Americans if you couldn't move into decent neighborhoods. I mean, you could afford a home, but you weren't permitted to buy a home in, 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 these, in these areas. Well, in the very month, the same month that King was killed, um, Lyndon Johnson signed the Fair, Fair Housing, Housing Act of, of, of 1968. I mean, it was still that April. Johnson was like this f phenomenal legislative genius, and I still think for all of his 
flaws, and um, you have to come up with a stronger word than flaw for Vietnam, obvi obviously. But for all of Johnson's flaws, I still think that he was the greatest president of, of my lifetime, and I don't even think it's a close call. So he passed the Fair Housing Act in 1968, which bans discrimination in housing on, on, the, on the basis of um, race or religion and, and, and those sorts of things. Well, you know, my sister and I grew up in Montclair, which was very benign, even in the 1950s and 60s when it came to race. I mean, it was a terrific place um, in which to grow up if you were a kid. But I remember in the 1950s, my parents, if they were looking for an apartment or if they were looking for a house, if we, if we were going to move, mm -hmm. you'd look at the ads in the newspapers. It would be the Star-Ledger, the Newark News, the Montclair Times. It would say, white only, white tenancy, no blacks. I mean, so. And this is in the Deep South. This is New this Jersey. This is in Montclair, New Jersey <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the 1950s. Uh, and I believe that it continued into the early mm -hmm. 60s. Mm -hmm. And so it was just understood that you couldn't move into those homes. And those homes actually were spe in specific neighborhoods. Um, in Montclair, so it didn't matter even if they didn't have an ad that specifically said you were excluded. You were, in fact, excluded. Well, that has changed. We still have housing uh, discrimination, but we don't have housing discrimination anything like the way it was in the 1950s and 60s, and that's the kind of thing that, that continued to live on. Other things that lived on that affected me personally how in God's name would I have had the career that I have had if it were not for the civil rights, if it were not for the civil rights movement? When I went to the Star-Ledger in 1970, the first working day of the decade of the 1970s, um, when I went there, there was um, one other black reporter, and he was a young guy, really, really nice guy, but he was almost like a kid, and he was almost like a copy boy. He wasn't mm -hmm. really a reporter. Mm -hmm. I was the first uh, black person there who was really a, a reporter, and, and my career flourished at the, um, at the Star-Ledger. Then um, I got recruited to the um, Daily News, and I'll tell you a story about um, the, the kind of racial issues that you run into, at first it was very difficult getting established at the Daily News. I got recruited and I had been a big shot at the Star-Ledger, so I was getting used to it. So I thought I was going to be a big shot in New York. Right? <laughs> I thought I was going to set the city on fire. I viewed myself sort of like a high draft pick. <laughs> and I was so wrong. Um, when I got to the Daily News, it was a um, big paper. They were flourishing in those days. Highest it, circulation, I think, in the U.S., Yeah, right? a couple yeah. million a day. Yeah. Um, enormous staff and a tiny news hole. Star-Ledger was just the opposite. <laughs> the Star-Ledger had a tiny staff, and it was a big broadsheet paper. So if you were a young reporter without a lot of experience, you got really good stories. At the Daily News, they didn't want to hear from Bob Herbert from, from the Newark Star-Ledger. So, so it took a while to catch on. But eventually, I got on the fast track. And... It became obvious that I was going to become city editor of the of the Daily News, and so 
the job that they posted me in on the way to becoming city editor was deputy city editor. So I was a deputy city editor, and that meant that I would have to go to the SCED meeting that they have at the paper every after, every, it's a morning paper, so every afternoon about four o'clock, you have a meeting of the top editors on the paper, and they decide which stories are gonna be featured, what's gonna make the paper, what's not, what's gonna be on page one, what's gonna have photos with it, and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. So what they do, it's a lot of editors, they, they go around the table, what do you have, what do you have, and you s try to sell your story. So it's a big conference table, it's a narrow room, and the conference table goes like this. And the news editor sits at this end of the table, he's kind of an arrogant guy. And I'm the new guy, I had never been to a SCED meeting before in my life, and I'm way down at the other <laughs> end of the table. And there's all these people around the table, and this is my very first meeting, so I'm nervous. And I'm sitting down there at the end of the table, and there's an editor from, um, uh, Long Island, one of the Long Island editors, has a story about a baby who's been killed. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to sell the story. You know. And the, the news editor is sitting sideways. So he's not looking down the table. He's sitting sideways. <laughs> and he's sort of leaning back in the chair. And he goes, what color was that baby? Mm. And there's this silence in the room. And it's my first sked meeting and I don't believe this question <laughs> has been asked and the whole and, and no black person had ever been at a sked meeting in the daily news before ever what and everybody was, around huh what year was this 70 no 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 no, 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 no. no. this was later oh, this was in the 80s this was probably 1983 yeah. that's even more amazing yeah. it's 1983 yeah and yeah. so so there's this hush <laughs> everybody knows there's a black guy in the room and, <laughs> but homeboy is not looking, he's sideways, so he goes, he's annoyed, he goes, what color was that baby? Mm. And I am not shy on these issues, I mean, usually I would be like in your face, but I was so stunned, and I was nervous to begin with, and I had no idea what to say. Nothing, nothing came out, I didn't say anything but neither did anybody else. So the news editor, hearing this silence the second time around, looks around to see what the heck is going on and sees me <laughs> at the other end of the table and just, and just goes on. And that's wow. the kind of thing that was going on. So I, I digressed there. The, the, the real point is if it wasn't for the civil rights movement, if it wasn't for all the agitation that had been going on in the 1950s and in the 1960s, I would have never been in that room at the end of, at the end of that at the end of that table. That was just a portion of the conversation with Bob Herbert. You can watch video of the entire session on the Marist Poll Facebook page, and you can see Bob's documentary, Against All Odds, by searching for that title, Against All Odds, on the PBS website. Now, in the weeks ahead, we'll be talking with Lynn Novick and Jeff Greenfield about 1968. You can watch those sessions live and send in questions as we go by following us on the Marist Poll Facebook page. We'll get you an alert ahead of time. 
A huge thanks to Nicolette Strano and the rest of the Maris Poll team for making this session possible. And as always, Poll Hub wouldn't even exist without our terrific executive producer, Mary Griffith. Remember, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Maris Poll. And if you like what you hear, please remember to tap that subscribe button wherever you're listening to this podcast. That's it for now. We'll see you next time. Thank you.